Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Hi, this is All Things Tudor, and I'm Deb Hunter. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Emma Cahill Maron. Emma, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So, Emma, you are so accomplished. Your CV is magnificent, for lack of a better term. If we met at a historical conference, how would you introduce yourself? Well, first of all, my name is Emma. I am also Dr. Cahel Marron. Now, I recently graduated with a PhD from the University of Murcia in in Spain. I have a long background in language teaching and also in research. And for the last decade, I've dedicated my research to Queen Catherine of Aragon, but I've also worked in the publishing world. So it's done a bit of everything. But now I'm really committed to Catherine of Aragon and to my next steps in the research world. So it's a very exciting time in my career. That's what I would tell you if we met in a conference. Well, I love that. And I really want to know more about Catherine of Aragon. So I'm so glad you're here today. What exactly led to your love of history? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I've always liked history because I've always interested in reading and literature. And I think my first love for history came from my love for historical novels. And when I was a kid growing up in Spain and, and I could grab a book like that, I would always enjoy it very much. I'm also a fan of books like by Tolkien or these kind of like medieval fantasies to worlds. So those two combined with my studies in school and how much I enjoyed learning about that very interesting period of time in Spain between the late 15th century, early 16th century, the reign of Isabella and Fernando, the Catholic monarchs, and also the beginning of the Spanish Empire in the beginning of the 16th century. I think when I started learning about that in school, those two loves combined and and I developed a really deep love for the history of the Spanish monarchy in the early modern period. Well, you're Spanish. When did you discover Catherine of Aragon and Tudor history? Oh, well, so as I say, I think my first interest was more in her mother, Isabella of Castile, because she's one of the most famous queens of Spanish history and people in general in Spain. I mean, she's very, very famous. But then when I was studying history at the University of Cantabria, where I did my undergraduate studies in, in actually in history, we became aware that they had an expansive policy and that their daughters had gone into other kingdoms to become queens. And that's be- when I became interested in Catherine of Aragon, because since I was raised bilingual, bicultural, I spent all of my childhood summers in England growing up with, with my family there. It just came like a natural thing. I just became interested in this Spanish woman that became so important in English history. It was just a natural thing transitioning from her mother to her in terms of 
my own background and, and life history, really. Well, I love that. What kind of research and work have you done on Catherine of Aragon? Where did this childhood adoration of her lead you? Yeah. So when I was deciding that I was going to take my studies to the next level after I finished my BA in history, I decided to study a master's in Spanish monarchy. And that's when I decided I was going to focus on Catherine Aragon because I had realized reading a lot about her that there was a disconnection between the biographies that I was reading in English and the available materials in Spanish and the available materials in Spanish were very scarce. And at the same time, a lot of the biographies I was reading in English didn't include the documents that I was finding during my research for my MA. So I decided I was going to focus on her early life for that part for my MA and the marriage negotiations and wedding festivities for her first marriage to Arthur Tudor in 1501. And that's how I became fascinated because I found so many documents that weren't included in these big biographies that had been written about Catherine of Aragon. And I just thought, oh, I can make this connection because I can speak and write and read both languages. So it came like a justice thing for Catherine in a way. If you know what I mean? Well, I do. And I'm curious, do you write your books in English and in Spanish? Well, most of my research is published in Spanish because I've done my studies in Spain. As, as I say, I did my MA in the same university I did my BA in the University of Cantabria. But then after that, I stopped for a while. I live currently in the U.S. And but when I came back, it was through another Spanish university, University of Murcia, with my advisor was the leading scholar in the field of female patronage in the Renaissance in Spain. So my project was also carried out in Spanish for my dissertation. But I am now very interested on publishing about everything that I found out about in these 10 years, but to a wider audience. I want to write for people in English now so everybody can read it. So my plan is now to write my two books, which the first one will be the dissertation, the findings that I did with my PhD. And then on the other hand, I am writing a new biography with a gender focus, actually. So those two will be in English. I'm really excited. Well, you know, you'll have to come back when those are done yes. and talk to me. So everyone will want to know about those. Oh, Catherine, what are some misconceptions about her? Oh, misconceptions about Catherine Varagon. There's so many. And this is, I'm so glad that you asked me about this because this is a big part of my focus. It's not just Catherine is the misinterpretation about women in the Renaissance in, in general. And, and we tend to, in my research group, we study mostly queens because it's the people who we know more about, the women we know more about in the Renaissance. But there's lots of misconceptions about women in the Renaissance in general. It's just we have more sources about queens and, and these women. Specifically, Specifically about Catherine of Aragon, I think the biggest misconception is that she was only focused on in being a pious woman and that she was a very boring, pious woman that didn't want to think of anything other than religion. And I think that was a huge part of her life, but there's also a very big part of her life that hasn't been uncovered before, which is that she was a living patron of the arts and humanities, just like Henry was. And I always felt it was very unfair that Henry has been showcased as this active patron of the arts, this introductor of the Renaissance in, into England, 
when his wife came from a place where Renaissance was already flourishing and she grew up with that. So she was actually helping Henry with this because she knew what she was doing. She had seen it before in Spain. I always thought it was very unfair that nobody made this connection. So that's basically what I think is the biggest misconception, that she was just a pious woman, a religious person that was praying all day and just very angry at the situation she had with with Henry. I think people tend to think about Catherine of Aragon just in those terms. You're absolutely right about that. You mentioned culture and art. Yes. Was art an important part of Catherine's life? It was, I would say, one of the most important parts of Catherine's life because she grew up during a cultural and and artistic revolution in Spain under the patronage of her mom and her father, and especially her mother. And and that was a big part of my dissertation, is a big part of my research, is to understand what kind of things she grew up with, to understand how she influenced England, because... And with Catherine, we have another problem is this, uh, a lot of the documents do not survive because of, you know, it was a very long time ago, circumstances, but also because her memory was erased. So going back to learning about what she grew up with, and when you do that, and when you start to study what uh, Isabella of Castile was doing in Castile while she was growing up, and then the connections just come very quickly with what she does afterwards in the court with Henry VIII. So I think that putting those two pieces together is going to be very useful for a lot of people studying Tudor art. I have talked to a historian who's found some ties between Catherine and Holbein. I want to talk to you about that, and I want to find out why you think Holbein is so popular right now. Oh, yes. I I recently just finished reading a biography of Holbein, and I think Holbein is so fascinating because he's the one that makes the emotional connection for us with the tutors, the one who's painted their faces. So when you see a face, that's the power of the portrait, right? The portrait's just, when you see someone in a portrait, you can establish a deeper emotional connection than when you just see a jewel described in an inventory, right? So I think that's the magic of Holbein. He's the one who gives a lot of people in the Tudor court a face. He also establishes our mental image of Henry VIII, too. And when we think of Henry VIII, what comes to our mind? It's Holbein. I think the very interesting thing that hasn't been done yet, although Sir Henry Hake back in the day did say that uh, this should be done and carried out, is his connections to not only Catherine of Aragon, but all of Henry's wives. And in the case of Catherine of Aragon, she's the first one there, and he arrives while she's still around. So that was a big part when I was trying to look for connections between artists in the Tudor court and Catherine of Aragon. And I actually found out in the year Holbein arrives to England, Erasmus of Rotterdam is writing a book for Catherine of Aragon. And the frontispiece of that book has a design by Holbein. The actual presentation copy that was probably given to the Queen because it was dedicated by Erasmus of Rotterdam personally to the Queen of England Erasmus's signature is just below the Holbein design. The other very evident connection there is that in that dedication to Catherine of Aragon of that book, he mentions an artist's work. And then when you put that together with the first people that he's painting in England and with his first royal commission, it comes to life. It's very evident to me that he was there to help what I called in my dissertation the court of defense, the people who were trying to save the Spanish alliance and therefore the marriage between Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. 
And then when this other recently scholar, uh, Barbara Braganza, uncovered that, that cipher and that connection with Holbein later on and Catherine, I was very happy because it just confirms what I could document in my own uh, dissertation. So it's very, very exciting what's happening with Holbein and women in, in England. I'm, I'm personally very excited for this. It really is exciting. And it seems like Holbein is the person, like you said, that made them real to us. But the Plantagenets all look like playing cards. <laughs> they were so flat. And Holbein's portraits are almost like pictures. Yes, aren't I agree. They? Like something yes. we'd make with a camera. I totally agree. And that, well, it's this idea of the Renaissance coming into England too. You see a Holbein portrait and you can almost talk to that person, don't you think? You think they're going to answer you because <laughs> it's so obvious that it, he's such a good artist. And that I think that's why we still are fascinated by him. That's so real. I know one picture, I can't remember which one it is right off the bat, but I'm so childish. <laughs> You can actually see the hairs on somebody's mole. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the <laughs> magic about these portraits. Yeah, they're wonderful. They're wonderful and you can feel like you can almost jump into that portrait and be next to that person. And that's wonderful. That's why I love Holbein. Well, you're absolutely right on that. On Catherine, were there any artists that she was the patron of when she was queen? Yes, this is also very new. And this part in my dissertation, I had to write quite quickly because I found out about a lot of the things while I was writing my dissertation. So this is all very new, but there's several connections between Catherine of Aragon and obviously the artists during her formative years in the court of her mother. So obviously she grew up in a court where Isabel of still had several not only painters of illuminated manuscripts, but also portrait painters already. So obviously she had a connection to those. She lived there for 16 years before she went to England. So she was painted by these innovative artists in Spain. But then also the connections with all these artists that Isabella is a patron of, all these, for example, the manuscripts that are coming to Spain from the Netherlands. And that's, for example, the first connection we can establish between a very important workshop in England, the Horenbout workshop, the connection between Catherine and the Horabouts becomes obvious in Spain already before she travels to England. So I think it's bringing back the connection between the Horabouts and someone at the royal court back to like even the early, early 16th century, not the 1520s like we used to think. That's a big first. And, and that's very important because in this workshop, there were women artists, very important women artists. For example, Susanna Horenbout was part of this workshop and she was praised by people like uh, Giorgio Vasari in the lives of the painters and artists uh, or other leading figures or Alfred Dura bought one of her paintings. These are high quality artists that are coming to England. Also, for example, Pietro Torrigiano, the famous sculpture that did the sculpture work for the tombs of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York was involved with Catherine of Aragon and Sir Henry Guilford. But also not just the artists, but the agents like Sir Henry Guilford, the people who are helping Catherine to attract these artists into the Tudor court. And then the, and covering all of that led to analyzing other leading figures like Holbein and trying to see if there was a connection there. And there was. And I think what we need to do is to think about Catherine and Henry in terms of their first 
15 years married as a couple who were doing things together. So all these artists that Henry brought were also part of Catherine's project. And when you think in that way, all these connections can be established. And it's it's really rewarding because it's not about saying Henry wasn't a great patron of the arts. It was about saying that he was a great patron with the arts with his wife in this first 15 years uh, of his reign, which is great. You know, we didn't know about this before. So that's the exciting part. You know, that really is exciting. And I want to get back to your career and what you found out about Catherine. Who do you think Catherine of Aragon really was? I think that's a complicated question, but it's really interesting because I've spent so much time with Catherine of Aragon in terms of researching her life and her accomplishments that uh, this is an interesting question to think about because I think a lot about her in terms of the patron of the arts, right? Because that was my project. But at the same time, now I'm thinking more of her in terms of her impact in European history, because we already knew that Catherine Aragon had been a great patron of humanities. And so my work was trying to see if that had a reflection in the arts, which it did. So now it's more about putting those two pieces together and being like, whoa, she was really, really influential. And she lives in a pivotal time, too, for women. This is the end of the 15th century when she's becoming early. She was like a millennial of the 16th century because she became of age in the turn of the century. So she is part of a generation that is not very well studied, but a very important generation to understand the change between the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, not just in England, but throughout Europe. And I think she was a leading figure of this change and especially for women. She, I found several connections, not just with women artists, but uh, women at court that she's favoring. Um, I don't know, people like the, I don't know, silk workers or other types of women that were maybe not painting Renaissance portraits, but yes, doing a lot of the work around her in the court that she favored and that she empowered. And to me, the most important contribution she did was changing that mentality in the Tudor court that an educated woman with the right type of capacities and abilities could exercise power and be good at it. And I think she changed that. And also with the education she gave to Mary, she gave her tools to successfully defend her candidacy to become the first reigning queen, not getting into the debate whether she was the first or not, but she was the first woman to effectively exercise power in England. I don't think she would have done that if her mother wouldn't have been Catherine of Aragon. And she paved the way for Elizabeth I. So I think Catherine of Aragon is that figure that changes the game for women in England. She seems to be. And in a way, she was born to be Queen of England, wasn't she? Indeed she was. I mean, her name was Catherine after her mother's grandmother was Catherine of Lancaster. Trastamara House, which she belonged to, was involved in the Hundred Year War, in the War of Roses. And the Queen Isabel of Castile was of Lancastrian descent. So she is connected to England and she is given that name because she is born the year that the Henry Tudor becomes king. And she's a very important part of this 
process that Henry VII takes on to make his claim legitimate. And first he marries Elizabeth of York, so the other candidate to the throne, obviously. And then he looks out to seek for allies. And then Isabel and Fernando are the most powerful people in Europe. So for him, this alliance was very important. And he was on this marriage for a long time. He was the one to insist. He wanted it. And then when it became a reality and Catherine came into England, he did the biggest party he had ever done and the biggest propaganda campaign he had done in his reign. So this was a big deal to him. And she became a very important piece in the legitimation process for the Tudors outside of England. It sounds like exactly what you said. This was part of his campaign to make England viable to the European monarchies. And Catherine was basically his pawn. Exactly. And then you have to think that each time you're bringing a bride that has even more royal blood than your own son, you're making your dynasty stronger. And she did descend from John of Gaunt. So, and she was, I mean, the daughter of the most powerful king and queen in Europe at the time. So for them to give him their daughter was extremely beneficial to his long-term strategies. And then that becomes a reality when she's there because she takes on the embassy. She's the first woman to be appointed ambassadress in history because she's so well-educated. She can do that. She learns how to cipher. She learns how to send secret messages. She knows how to play the court game. And she then becomes a very successful queen with Henry VIII. And for the first five years, his foreign policy is all tied to Spain and what Catherine's father wants. So in that sense, Henry VII did a good job. And so did Isabella and Fernand, thinking that she was going to be good for the Spanish alliance because she was amazing for the Spanish alliance until the problem we all know that happened. (laughs) That's true. The great matter. Yes. So we'll talk about that another day. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Tony Award winning musical Six, coming to Tennessee Performing Arts Center February 21st through the 26th. From Tudor queens to pop icons, the six wives of Henry VIII take the microphone to remix 500 years of historical heartbreak into a euphoric celebration of 21st century girl power. This new original musical is the global sensation that everyone is losing their head over. The Tony Award winning musical six comes to tennessee performing arts center february 21st through the 26th get your tickets today at tpac.org that's tpac.org i'm fascinated with her love of the arts how she taught mary in your field of study do you include other tutor women in your work tutor queens tutor women or do you mainly focus on Catherine and mary Well, one of the lines of research that I developed during my dissertation because of this lack of sources was the construction of the image of female power in England and how that came to fruition. Because we know about Mary and Elizabeth's, you know, their portrait medals, their seals and all that. But what I was researching, what I noticed is that in the 15th century, women become increasingly important in England the same way that women became increasingly important in Castile. And I think England and Castile behave a bit 
it similarly in that sense. So there's a lot of turmoil. So women like Margaret Beaufort or all these women become important elements. So that changes the way women are, are viewed, right? So I did a lot of work on trying to find out if Elizabeth of York was a patron of the arts, if Margaret Beaufort was a patron of the arts, and how women in that 15th century would, if they were patrons of eliminated manuscripts and things like that, just to do the same thing that I did in Spain with Isabella of Castile, right? What was there before Catherine to know what she changed? Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Is it difficult to find primary sources on Catherine Mary and these other women you research? I think it's not difficult because, but it's very different depending on the woman. So we have a lot of sources for Queen Regnants, like Isabel of Castile. So I think that just sometimes is in detriment of the women that are not as present in the sources because they don't become the one who's signing the documents, if you know what I mean. So yes, it, it's very difficult. Queen consorts have special status. So sometimes a lot of the things they do, they're linked to their husband. So in this case, I think it's more useful to use a gender approach and more of an agency approach, right? So for example, I'll explain what I mean by that. When I was studying the revolution in architecture in the Tudor court, the style became something important. So if, for example, a historian has suggested, oh, this building that was finished in the reign of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon seems like it was influenced by the Spanish style of the court of Isabella and Ferdinand. That became something, the focus of interest for me as soon as I would learn about these things that could have been influential from one court to another. So I think artistic exchange and style influence became important because in my case, I have to do more of a contextual approach to her patronage than when people have inventories or accounts or privy purse expenses, if you know what I mean. Exactly. I'm just blown away by your research and the things you've learned and how you've really brought Catherine to life for us in a way we've never thought about her. That's great. Thank you. Well, thank you. If you could pinpoint one thing you have learned about Catherine, only one thing that you did not know before, what would that be? That resilience gets you far in life, that just keeping at it and trusting your own instincts and being true to what you believe in really works out for you to, in the long run, become accomplished or well-known if you're an outstanding figure like this. Well, she did that, didn't she? hmm Well, let's talk about you. Let's talk about your career. We've touched on that. What projects do you have going on? Let's talk about books, anything like that you've got coming up. What can you tell me? Well, I told you about my two books. And like I said, one will be focused on the findings that I was able to unearth in in my dissertation. So it'd be very similar structure to my dissertation. My dissertation ended up being very long. So my idea of transforming this into a book is I want to highlight the main ideas about what I uncovered. And then if anybody needs further information, they can always go to the big monster, almost thousand page long dissertation. That's the first book that I'm involved in. The second book is a new biography on Catherine of Aragon. And I think with a new approach. So for me, a gender focused approach and about this agency idea that she had in the Tudor court. And, and when you go through her life, having this in mind, you find out that the biography 
changes a lot, right? And that's what I'm interested in doing. Maybe even like shocking sometimes people like, oh, really? But I read that other biography and that wasn't there, you know? Uh, the surprise element, I think, is one of the things I'm going to be looking for in, in the readers, for sure. And then I am very busy. I just came back from London. I was awarded a scholarship there by the British Spanish Society. We had a wonderful award ceremony at the Spanish Ambassador's Residence. So I was over the moon to be there. I was able to meet with some people in London, too, which was very exciting because after seven years without visiting London, I was excited to be back. And I will be going back in January because we have more things. I'm involved in a research group in Spain and we study women in the Renaissance and specifically in this case we study portrait medals. We'll be doing a seminar on the 500 year anniversary of the publication of the education of the Christian woman which was written by Juan Luis Vives, a Spanish humanist, but commissioned by Catherine Varagon and dedicated to Princess Mary Tudor. So it's a very important female educational manual that became the most important educational manual in the Renaissance. So, I mean, we have to celebrate that, right? In good style. And then I'm very happy that I will be giving a conference in early spring at the American University on female patrons and female artists in the Tudor court. So very busy. Well, you'll have to keep us posted on all of that, mm -hmm. if you don't mind, because we have a, a huge interest in the All Things Tudor Group and Catherine of Aragon. She and Mary are going through a renaissance right yes. now. Yes. That's a very bad pun, but it's true. Oh, it's a wonderful pun because it's true. It's true. And I'm so happy. Ten years ago, I felt very alone, but <laughs> now I don't. So it's great. Thousands of people just want to know more because these women have been stereotyped. They've been put in a box, so to speak, and that's how they've been studied and the information has been taken for truth. And now so much new information is coming to light, such as your work and your research. And it's very refreshing. I'm just very happy to be able to contribute to this renaissance. It's, my advisor and I talked about this several times and we just say it's just a justice thing, you know. We have to make justice to these women because they deserve it. And it's a way to vindicate that women's voices should be heard and women's history is an important part of human history. And it's not okay to leave it out because then your history is not complete. Well, if it wasn't for women, none of us would be mm -hmm. here, would we? I know. <laughs> so it's about time we learn more about our history and what women experienced in the past. And I absolutely love what you're doing. I have to tell you that. I'm, I'm having a real fangirl moment. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. And can you tell us where we can find you on social media? Yes. Well, I've become very active over the last year in Twitter. My handle there is Emma L. Cahill. I also have an Instagram account. I am adering 84 there. And then if you want to download any of my publications, you can always go to my academia.edu profile. And I do post some information on my LinkedIn but I mean, uh, anyone that, you know, has any questions or anything, they can contact me via Twitter. I'm pretty quick at answering. So I'm waiting for all your questions and all your comments and any information you may find about Catherine Varagon, because I'm always interested in that, of course. That sounds great. And if you don't mind, send me over 
your information and I'll put it in the show notes so people can can find you immediately when they pull up the show. That's that would be wonderful. So happy that people are interested in Catherine Barragon and anything I can answer, I'll be more than happy to do. If I know the answer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, you never know. And you probably will, but sometimes people do ask questions that make us think. And I love those. Oh, a hundred. That's why I I know there's a lot of debate now if Twitter or not Twitter, but I've found a lot of information that I didn't know about, not just on Catherine of Aragon, but that context, because I I do use a lot that contextual approach. So just sometimes you find connections where you thought, oh, that that sounds interesting because this and that. And and you're right. It makes you think. It does. And the thing about Twitter, like you say, there's a lot of controversy right now, but I've met some of my best friends on Twitter. Yeah, because it's a way to share your passion, right? It's it's it, I it's like, like it. all important relationships start on Twitter anymore for whatever reason. <laughs> uh, just some of the historians mm-hmm. I've met, like you, we met on Twitter. You joined the All Things Tutor group, and that's how we connected. And I love that we can do things like that now because even 10 years ago, that would have been impossible. I know, right? And thinking about your first questions and going back to like being a kid and liking those types of novels and that maybe when when I became a teenager and maybe I could have joined social media just to think that I could have found a community of people that also enjoyed that because I felt a bit like the odd one out sometimes but these communities you build in in social media now you just feel a connection to people that love the same things you do which I think is great that's what I use it for absolutely and I know 22 25 years ago maybe I walked into a bookstore and there was a Alison Weir book on Eleanor of Aquitaine. And I remember buying that and I thought, <laughs> there's someone else in the world that likes the same things I do. Being Southern, you know, you didn't really hear it talked about a lot. And to know that there were people that were interested in women in history and things that happened in the medieval times and in the Tudor era. And then we have the rise of social media and we find out there's thousands of us that love this. Yes, you're totally right. I remember all those summers that I would go to England and, you know, biography and history books have always been big in England. And especially you would books when I was a kid in Spain were so expensive, but then you had paperback in England. And I always felt like I would go to the bookstore and be like, oh, I can actually buy two or three books instead of one. So I've always had that passion for books and for anything that's related to history in books, really. Well, we have that in common too, so <laughs> we could probably talk about that for another hour. So I'm just going to have to invite you back. Yes, that's totally, well, you know, well, my favorite things are history, books, and talking. So I think you're pretty good with me. You're, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've hit it right off. And I will tell you, you were talking about the Spanish-British award. I'm doing a thing over the holidays with the British Consul General, and I'm very honored with that, but they're not going to be giving me an award. (laughs) But it's great to be involved in those international relations because, like I said before, I grew up feeling a bit the odd one out, spending, you know, summers abroad and all that. But now going there, I felt like 
there was more people like me. So that's refreshing when you've always had like a, an international background. It's always nice to find people that have similar experiences too, because they can relate. That's true. And with us, my husband is British. We've been married 22 years and meeting other Southerners that are married to British people. That's refreshing. And meeting people in the international community, it just leads to a different insight than you would have without it. I agree. I'm, I'm married to an American and well, my dad's Irish, my mother is Spanish. So I know exactly what you mean. And it is refreshing. And the good thing is, you know, I, I did feel at home when I was back in Britain too. So that's always going to be part of me too. I, I grew up going there every summer. So that's always a place that I'm going to feel right at home. Right. And I like that. I like that. I went back after seven years and I was like, oh, this is still my home too. We have so much in common. You definitely have to come back. So I will. I love that. A huge thank you for joining me today, Emma. You have been absolutely delightful. I have enjoyed every minute of our conversation. Thank you for giving us new insight and enlightenment on Catherine of Aragon, her love of the arts, how she was a patron of the arts and culture, and what she taught her daughter, who became Mary I of England. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for making it so easy. It's wonderful to talk to you. Oh, that's so sweet. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I do want to give a huge thank you to our listeners of All Things Tudor. Thank you for joining us and making the magic happen. You make my day every day, and I can't tell you how very much I appreciate that. Please follow the podcast. It's free to follow, and it's available on all the major outlets out there. Leave a review. And I today want to thank Adrian. He has been a huge supporter. And just a thank you shout out for what you do. And thank all of you that are sending emails and messages and letting me know how much you enjoy the All Things Tutor podcast. Please keep doing that, and I look forward to talking to y'all next week. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye, Emma. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later.